Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Please note that this episode contains depictions of severe violence that some people may find very disturbing. Welcome everybody. My name is Erin Jesse and I'm a senior lecturer in history at the University of Glasgow. I am joined today by Rachel Kerr, who is Professor of War and Society at King's College London. And today we're in conversation with Robert McNeil, who has written a book called Grave Faces, a forensic technician's story of gathering evidence of genocide in Bosnia, which has recently been published by Bihar Publishing. It's already available in the United States and will be available in the United Kingdom in the next few weeks following this podcast's release. As way of a brief introduction, Robert McNeil had a career in pathology in Scotland as an NHS mortuary operations manager. In 1996, he volunteered to travel to Bosnia and Herzegovina on behalf of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia to help gather evidence against suspected perpetrators indicted of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. In his capacity as a forensic technician, he gathered evidence from the bodies of victims from hundreds of mass graves, mainly from Srebrenica, but also in addition in Croatia and Kosovo. When he retired, he took up painting as a hobby, but felt compelled to depict images from his former career to help him deal with a mild form of post-traumatic stress disorder. On realizing that both his experiences in forensics, together with his artwork, might help people who themselves may have experienced trauma, he started exhibiting his work. As an ambassador of Remembering Srebrenica UK, he currently delivers educational presentations in various venues, including schools, museums, and prisons. He sends the message that no society is invulnerable to prejudice and intolerance, and that art, as well as being therapeutic, can be a positive way of explaining and recovering from traumatic experiences. And of course, the next step in his career then is writing this book, Brave Faces, which we're going to be discussing in this podcast. So Robert, first of all, thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you also, thank you. Rachel. Maybe as a way of starting this conversation, we can begin with a broad question. Why did you decide to write this book? Thanks for inviting me along to this podcast. And when I was deployed to various parts of the world, especially to Bosnia and Kosovo, I kept a diary of some of the events that I became involved with there. And, and that lay dormant for many years until I retired. And as you see, I took up painting. But I also supported the charity Remembering Srebrenica UK. And I felt that I wanted to do more than just talk about my paintings. And so I decided to get my diary together and compile a manuscript that a publisher in Florida, in fact, a, a Bosnian himself, he was a publisher of another book called Life Against Death Srebrenica. And, and through a conversation, he realized that my diary might be worth publishing. And that's how this journey started. And my reasons for writing it, there were a couple of reasons, in fact. Each year, Remembering Srebrenica have a theme about the conflicts in Bosnia. And this year, the theme is genocide denial. And one of the main reasons for writing the book, I guess, was to help challenge uh, genocide denial and the glorification of war criminals that's very rife in Republika Srpska and in Serbia. And as you all know, denial is dangerous, disrespectful, and really hurtful to the victims' families. And by highlighting the work of the forensic teams who came from 32 countries worldwide, I wanted to try and demonstrate that the evidence that was gathered during the years, certainly that I worked in Bosnia from 96 to 2002, the level, the mountain of, of forensic evidence that we provided for the criminal courts it was irrefutable, really. And I try to use that in occasions when genocide denial appears. And another reason was to try and put a more human face on the forensic specialist, because people's perception of people who do this type of work are anonymous. They wear face masks and, and forensic suits and so on. But behind the masks are 
just ordinary human beings who are sometimes faced with with really difficult challenges. Um, especially that was especially the case in in Bosnia, where they might be away from their homes for months at a time, and the teams became like families really, where we bonded with one another and we had arguments and discussions and and an element there was an element of of humor there in amongst this carnage and and finally i guess as you mentioned i'm a forensic technician and no one really knows what a forensic technician is and and that's always a bit annoying to me because once i had we, after a, a a really grueling and difficult trip to kosovo in 1999 this time for the foreign office the foreign minister gave a, a speech thanking the people who went. It was a small team, mainly made up of police officers. And he thanked every team, every discipline, the pathologist, the anthropologist, the radiographer, and of course the police. And he missed out the forensic technician, and that really annoyed me. Because we work extremely closely with pathologists, particularly at autopsies, but in circumstances like in Bosnia and Kosovo, we work with all of the experts trying to assist them in, in the gathering of the evidence. And so I wanted to highlight the fact that technicians do exist. You don't often see them in TV programmes because they're kind of in the background, if you like, but they really are very heavily involved in the autopsies with the pathologist. And that's the reasons, I guess, why I wrote a book. Thank you, Robert. I wonder if I can just pick up on that a bit. Thank you very much for the opportunity to read the book. I really thought it was a wonderful book. Um, Thank you. And you managed to give a very detailed account and do an excellent job, as, as you just said, putting the human face to the work that was being done there. And I think often we don't think about the sort of intricacies of that and what it takes to get that kind of evidence that's needed then for the courts. We tend to sort of skate over the processes. So it's really valuable to have that. But you do it in a way, what really struck me was you do it in a way that tells the story of you and your colleagues who were there and the, the humour comes through and the difficulties of it comes through, but all the time it doesn't sort of take away from foregrounding the victims and their families who are sort of at the centre of all of this, which I thought was really powerful. But I just wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned at the end about just the sort of technicians being, um, I don't know whether it's unsung heroes or not, because we don't really know exactly what it is they do. So I wondered if you could just tell us a bit more about what exactly your job was, what is the role of a technician and what you were doing yeah. beforehand. And then why then when you got the call, you know, at the beginning of the book, you sort of say how you got there. But I was really curious as to why, because it sort of hints that you you answered the call really quickly and it was a straightforward yes. But I wondered whether there was any more deliberation in there and what made you go in the first place to Bosnia. Yeah, well, a proper title it is anatomical pathology technologists and and no one is interested in talking about and what an APT does because it's such a mouthful and so the term forensic technicians because this was an international job really where technicians from around the world had different names from us so we decided collectively that we would describe ourselves as forensic technicians and and I had worked at the time in 96 I had worked for for over 30 years working in the post-mortem room with the pathologist, establishing the causes of death and mainly people who died of natural causes. But I also dealt with murder victims, victims of suicide and medical negligence cases. And that brought me, uh, that introduced me to the forensic medicine department in Glasgow University. And uh, I became quite friendly with the professor at that time there. And he was part of a group of pathologists worldwide who would respond to major incidents or disasters, uh, natural disasters or indeed wars. And, and he'd originally asked me to travel to Rwanda in 96, just the early part of 96 because of the, the genocide there in, in 94, 95. And I was keen to do that. I was in a position as the manager of all of the, the mortuaries in Glasgow where I could apply for time to be seconded to these different places. And the professor had recommended me to this charity called Physicians for Human Rights in Boston to be able to join uh, forensic teams wherever we were needed. And, 
But as I was ready, packed and ready to go to Rwanda, I received a call from PHR because the, the UN had discovered mass graves around the Srebrenica area. And there was such an international clamour because, you know, I wouldn't go into all the politics of it, but there was a, a great sense that Bosnia had been left on their own and nothing was being done to help them. And, but however, since the discovery of the mass graves, there was great pressure for a forensic team to go out there and start the investigations. So in the uh, summer of 96 uh, was my first deployment out there. And so I was so uh, so moved really by what I had witnessed out there and because the, the graves at that time were still fairly fresh, if you like, and the country was in turmoil. The, the fighting had stopped because of the, the Dayton Accord that the war had stopped, but there was still sporadic fighting going on and thousands of refugees who had been displaced were trying to find their way home. So it was really quite a sight. And I felt that going out there for that first month or so, because of interruptions and so on, we, I felt that we really hadn't done very much. We hadn't touched it at all. And so myself and one or two of the colleagues who had worked with that on that first trip decided to go out again. And that kind of compromised my situation at work. And so as well as asking for study leave, I used up all manual leave really to go back out there, to volunteer to go back out there uh, on a number of occasions up until the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal, had enough evidence and the whole project was virtually closed down. I had a quick follow-on because you mentioned going back and one of the other things I found striking in the book was the change in the context when you went back for the second time. That's a bit later. Mm -hmm. You talk about the the instability and the insecurity comes through very strongly in the first section of the book when you're first there and it's all very fresh and raw and it feels like it might tip back into conflict really easily and I think the next time you go back that's still there but there's S4 there by that time from right it's sort of the 97 period particularly so the context was different but also the location was different that you were in Mm. Um, and you were you were looking at excavating bodies from graves around some of the camps that have been used and I just wondered if you could say a bit about this is quite a harrowing part of the book the first part is quite harrowing and difficult to read in relation to Srebrenica and the mass graves and the second part perhaps even more so because of the things that have been done to some of the bodies and that sort of led me to thinking you make the point strongly through the book about genocide and about justice And I wonder what you feel about the differential convictions of people for genocide in Srebrenica and not in other parts of Bosnia, where arguably, I don't know that you can put it on a scale and say even more terrible, but there's something, there's something qualitatively seems to me more horrific, maybe about some of the things that went on in those camps. No, that's a, a very good point you raise, Rachel. There was a, an awful lot of hurt, especially from the people from the Priador area in northern Bosnia, where many of the concentration camps were. And when the, the, the judges in The Hague decided to limit the charges and convictions of genocide to Srebrenica and a smaller extent to Sarajevo, the people in the area of Priador, from the notorious camps such as Omarska, Ternopoli and Keraterm, these people suffered dreadful, dreadful torture and injuries. And I must say, I felt myself, I was quite surprised myself when th- those crimes weren't regarded as, as part of the genocide. And in addition to that too, the systematic rape that went on both in the camps and in towns all throughout Bosnia, were so horrific and it was systematic. And so I felt that that too was a crime that merited to be included in the genocide verdicts. But we, you know, we had nothing to do with the the, the court cases and so on. And although we were surprised about the outcome, at least they managed to, to term the Srebrenica event as a genocide. and But that nevertheless left others in Bosnia quite angry and hurt that it wasn't 
included in their crimes. I mean, it was perpetrators that, that were put on trial were, were guilty of the most heinous crimes. And you'll know better than I do how difficult it is to prosecute cases of genocide and come up with the evidence that it was orchestrated deliberately by people in advance. And, um, and I guess that was part of the justification for the outcomes of the trials. But as I say, it, it nevertheless left the many people hurt and quite cynical, really, about the whole trial process. But personally, crimes against humanity, you know, before uh, the Holocaust was the worst crime, you know, that could be laid upon anyone. And I think a lot's been learned there. When the, the verdicts were handed out in The Hague, I do remember that the judges uh, had promised that later they would report on why the verdicts were as they were. In other words, they would give some explanation as to why the genocides were limited to Srebrenica and to Sarajevo, but I haven't seen any of those reports since then. But I think also that um, it should be mentioned that in the camps, when we were working uh, with those victims' bodies, those victims had, many of them, most of them, in fact, had been in the ground since uh, early 1992. And so they had deteriorated to, you know, to a great extent. They were basically just skeletons. And, and for the pathologists and the anthropologists, it made it harder, I guess, to, you know, to come up with a definitive cause of death as to the torture and so on that these people had endured. But nevertheless, there were plenty of witnesses that testified who were victims themselves there. And, you know, one of the and our briefing, I think it was on the Omarska victims, we were asked to look for evidence of sexual torture against both men and women. And, and that became quite a challenge you know, for the pathologist to, to do that because, as I say, the bodies were mostly skeletalized. Where uh, in Srebrenica, the massacre there was in 1995. We were out there quite quickly after that. And that, that made it much more easier to describe the causes of those people's deaths. I'm wondering, Robert, um, first of all, thank you for breaking that down for the listeners a little bit more what you do and also the nature of some of the crimes that you were being asked to investigate. I'm wondering, as you speak and, and as I read the book as well, I often noticed there was this kind of tension um, in what you were writing about from the perspective of somebody who was trained you know, to produce evidence that was scientifically and legally rigorous. But then also you were working in a context where you were often surrounded by and working with people who had been very much personally affected by these atrocities. And I'm wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit to how you navigated that tension, perhaps between survivors' expectations, um, especially around things like, you know, a determination of genocide, which, as you've noticed, was really important, especially to, say, Bosniaks or the Bosnian Muslims in this context. And then, you know, your need to be a sort of objective scientist in analysing, you know, what was coming from these mass groups. Yeah. Well, I think that um, I had belief when I went out there at first that I would be able to cope with anything that they could put in front of us. And that wasn't the case necessarily with many of the other disciplines. Radiographers, for example, as you know, uh, their job is to take X-ray images of people who are alive, patients in, in hospitals and so on. So very few of them had encountered death before, and certainly not on that scale. And even with police officers, um, many of them had been involved in, in murder cases, but again, nothing on that scale. So the pathologist and the technician were probably the people who had the most experience, really, in gruesome deaths, to put it bluntly. But everyone was absolutely appalled and shocked by the level of torture and cruelty that was perpetrated against those victims. And as far as the local people, the, the victims' families, you know, the mothers and so on, that was a big challenge for us as well. I, was, I had been trained, and part of my job actually was to deal with the bereaved all the time. You know, they came to me for the, the death certificate, and I, I was well-practiced in answering questions about causes of death and so on. But in Bosnia, it had a totally different dimension because 
the 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 women, when they were expelled from Srebrenica, for example, were told that their men would return to them after questioning, etc. And the women who were then evicted, if you like, to the next safe area, so-called, was Tuzla. And they waited in vain for their men to return. And when we encountered the women, uh, including the group, the mothers of Srebrenica, they were really hoping that their men would still be alive, but nevertheless, they would turn up at the mortuary looking for any answers. And at that time, we were only, the dead to us were grave numbers. You know, each body had to be given a, a special number. Um, and that number carried through throughout every process. And, and in the book, I talk about times when mothers and women mainly came to identify clothing and and that really uh, they, they couldn't identify the bodies because they were so badly dealt with and and it's important to say as well I think that in the book I describe that by 1997 and into 1998 we realized that the graves had been entered re-entered by the Serbs and the bodies taken out uh, in an attempt to try and hide them. And to do that, they tore the bodies apart um, using mechanical diggers, and then they took those body parts to various sites around northern Bosnia into Republika Srpska. And that was devastating to the families, of course, especially being Muslims uh, who wanted their loved ones' bodies back to bury them as quickly as possible. And for the team, of course, it meant that we would be working not just with the 8,000 or so victims from Srebrenica, but over 17,000 body parts and trying to put them together again, identify them. But as I say, we knew them, we knew the, each body or body part by a number. And it was when the women came to the mortuary to identify clothing that for the first time, really, they talked about their sons, their husbands, their fathers, and using their names and and that affected everyone in the mortuary who was there dealing with these events and and I myself was quite taken aback by the fact that you know that I, a woman identified I think it was a vest and a shoe or something that had been taken from a victim and she mentioned that they were belonged to her son and and his name and and that became uh quite depressing for us but it also had a, a good effect in a way because it refocused us to do what we were there to do really but I have to say that objectivity which is our middle name was severely challenged at events like these. I should also qualify that a wee bit because I, I did work with um, during that period 1960-2002 I worked with victims in Croatia and Serbian victims, not in Serbia, but in Kosovo and in Croatia. So although I tried to remain objective, it was very difficult when encountering the families and living with the families, uh, some of the families too, was a challenge. We, could, we couldn't escape why we were there and the work. And so it, it, was, it was quite difficult. In the book, you talk about, I mean, what, what comes through too is your kind of understanding of what happened. So you went to Bosnia with not much understanding of the kind of political context and of mm. the war. And then as time went on, that grew through your own reading and talking to people and you, you come to a, a really good understanding of what has happened. But, you know, hearing you talk about just the, and, and reading in the book, just the horrific nature of it all and hearing recounts how bodies were dug up torn apart and put in different places it's just it's inhumane obviously it's inhumane and I wondered you know are you are you any closer to to any understanding of how that happens from your work or from your thinking and reflection on it over the past few years yeah that is indeed a, a big question and I've gone over it in my head many many times as to how this could have happened why it happened and I haven't got an answer that will probably satisfy you, but other than the propaganda that was used by, in particular, uh, Slobodan Milosevic, and, and that seems to be a theme that runs through many wars that I've looked at, you know, where 
like in Rwanda, of course, where the Tutsis were regarded as cockroaches and so on. And so the fact that um, Milosevic focused his attention for propaganda against Muslims, the history of the country was also used where Muslims were made out to be the, you know, they were the criminals, they were the uh, the, the the people who um, you know killed thousands of Serbs so on and so forth going back centuries you know and and I guess that's a tool that's used constantly and and so I feel that the fact that the Serbs were buoyed by the politics if you like where Milosevic Karadzic and Miladic they just played with the UN because they realised the weakness of the politicians throughout the world in the West in particular, and that because they believed that because the Serbs were allies to the, the West in the, during the Second World War, that in the West they wouldn't care. They were just Muslims and nobody's going to miss them, you know, and it has connotations of other conflicts as well. So, But on an individual basis, I couldn't get to grips with how the soldiers who carried out, physically carried out the executions, how they managed to to regard the the Muslims or the victims as inhuman was beyond me, other than the fact that many of those soldiers who killed, who were actually responsible for the killings, some of those men were forced into doing that because Former Yugoslavia, Muslims married Serbs and Croats, and it was it was supposed to be a, a model for the world of integration. And, but those soldiers who, for example, had Muslim wives, they were regarded with suspicion, and they were among the first to be sent to the killing fields to test them, I guess, to test their loyalty to Karadzic and, and Miladic. And, and if they didn't, they refused to take part, then their families may well have suffered. And you know, I think there was quotes for soldiers had given evidence to say that if they didn't kill them, they themselves would be killed. But I, I still can't get my head around the brutality of the torture that many of the victims suffered before they were killed. I mean, the, especially in, in 96 and going into 97, part of my job was to, along with the pathologist, to record, measure and and photograph the injuries. And, and it was at those times uh, just thought, God, how, how can how can anyone do that to another person? And and I attended, I think I mentioned it in the book, that I attended a trial in The Hague where I assumed that these people, and many of them were tough guys who, you know, had either been police officers or even prisoners and themselves and ex-prisoners rather. And I thought that they would be the characters that might be responsible. You could look at them and see their shaven heads and so on and think these are these are obviously brutal guys, but in the trial that I attended, the accused was a small, balding, bespeckled man, a bit looked a bit like me actually, who happened to be a school teacher. And I couldn't understand at all how in his mind he became a killer. And I won't go into the crimes that he was accused of, but they're bestial crimes that there's just no understanding of. And so I guess people get caught up in it and they believe what they're political leaders tell them, at least for the duration of the, the war and so on. But gradually they realise, I guess, as in most wars, that what they're doing was wrong. And hopefully the sooner the better. But um, but I don't think I'll ever go over the level of cruelty that was meted out against those victims and towards the families who who had lost loved ones and not knowing whether they were alive or dead. and if they were dead, how they had died, did they suffer, and so on. And that became you know, quite an issue for everyone. If I can maybe follow up, just sort of leading on then from what you were saying um, with regards to the, the often extreme brutality that a lot of the people whose remains you ended up working with experienced surrounding the moment of their death. A thread that kind of carries throughout the book is, is your commitment to what at one point you referred to as ongoing patient care and ensuring then that these human remains that are being recovered are treated with the utmost respect in the process of this forensic investigation that you're doing. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can maybe um, explain that a bit for listeners. First of all, what it means to you, what it means to the communities, why you feel it's important. I, I suspect it's tied in with what you were just speaking about, but 
if you could maybe yeah. give us a bit of a sense of that, that would be really useful, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. If you bear in mind that the majority of the experts that were out there had very little dealing with victims' families and so on. And I mentioned earlier that part of my job back home was to deal with the bereaved and try and answer their questions. But in addition to that, another part of our job was to, to reconstruct the bodies after the, after the autopsy and be able to present it to the families should they wish to view bodies and so on. So that was, that was common practice for me and my staff at, at home. The other experts, especially the pathologists and the anthropologists, tend to focus purely on a scientific, you know, process basically, and they don't. They often don't have any dealings with the families at all. So that, that's an, an important part, a part and role that the technicians can do in order to try and focus the minds of the people working in in these quite awful conditions that these are human beings and that we should treat them with the greatest of respect, even although the families will never know or never know who we are or what we had done. And it was sometimes a challenge um, to, to ensure that bodies, bearing in mind that they were coming into the, the mortuary in truckloads with up to 200 bodies or body parts at a time. And it was, it was quite easy to forget the fact that these are human beings and their stories are you know, important, um, not just for the families, but for everyone involved, even themselves. And, and in the book, I write about you know, some incidents where I had to remind folk that these are human beings. And that, that's been the case in my role throughout my career, but it is especially difficult in circumstances like this. You know, I, I was involved in the Southeast Asian tsunami and, and part of my job was to try and recover and repatriate victims there and you know, families were on top of us all the time, desperate for news of their loved ones. And again, because of the conditions, it can be difficult to maintain a level of care for the victims. But people got it eventually. I mean, they thought I was this, uh, they often thought, I guess, that I was this grumpy old to get that's on people's backs all the time but you had to be for a whole variety of reasons including for health and safety because I also mentioned in the book that you know illness was quite common amongst the team unless they paid the best possible care for the environment that that we worked in so it's in everyone's interest for us to do that but as I mentioned in, in one of the questions before when the team encountered the families and they came to the mortuaries and they put names and and you know the the, the personalities of the victims because in, it's always been my experience that people in these circumstances want to talk about their loved ones and and you have to be you have to remain whilst you have to remain objective you have to be able to have time to listen to them and to understand a wee bit of what they're going through. If I can sort of circle back to the question, the why you wrote the book question, but more a question about who you wrote the book for. And in that context, I sort of invite you to say something about the Association of Women Victims of War, to whom I understand yeah. the proceeds of the, the book are going. Because the sense from the book and the sense from what you've been saying is that there's a, you know, one question I had for you was how whether the writing the book had been a process of catharsis and into about art and dealing with PTSD, but writing the book itself, was that helpful to you in processing it? But then overlaying that, I get the sense that the book is about your experiences and your team's experiences. And as you say, putting human face that, but that's not really what the book is about and for, that it's more about the victims and their families and giving dignity to them and, and doing justice to them. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> you're right in picking up on the fact that I do care about what happened there, but my experience and my reason, uh, another reason for writing a, a book, I guess, was that working and uh, living with the victims' families and so on and, and I write in the book about my first trip out there living with a mother and daughter. And 
they knew what we were doing, although we weren't allowed to talk about it for security reasons, I guess. And but they knew because we come home stinking of death, basically. And and I hadn't realised that they had been waiting themselves for news about their dad. And and I felt awful having to go there, to back work there, talk to them. I would the daughter who was in her late teens was very good and tried to stop her mum from being too inquisitive and for our sakes, I guess, but as well as that for her mum's sake. And and I had a long conversation with her one day when she talked about how the war had affected them. But also in later deployments, I met many other people who would tell similar stories and, and so on. And uh, it wasn't until after I had started representing Remembering Srebrenica that I met many, many more people who had suffered, in particular uh, a woman called Bakira Hasesic, who's the founder and chair of the charity he mentions, the Association of Women Victims of War. And, and she told me her story, which was unbelievable, really. She came from a town in Visegrad, which was used as basically as a rape camp where Posh Hotel was taken over by the Serbs and women were systematically raped. Some of them jumped to their death from the balconies and in this terrible place. And Bakira and her daughter were both raped multiple times and uh, her daughter badly beaten. And, and so Bakira spends her time trying to expose rapists, not just in Bosnia, but in other anywhere else where these rapes occurred in, in the Balkans. And, and so she is probably uh, one of the most remarkable women that I've had the privilege of meeting. She's an extraordinarily brave woman because she's coming up against men in their towns and villages who were at the time police officers who were responsible for these rapes who have never been captured. And so she provides evidence for the criminal courts against these men and so I have helped her out uh, once or twice before financially and I had made it a point that when I started painting I couldn't be comfortable in making money personally from them and I had been involved in another charity in Bosnia during the times I was working there and I write about that in the book but so I felt that as well as paintings which I used to illustrate the war rather than grim photographs quite successfully. When I, I wrote the book, I'd made up my mind that once again, I couldn't take, I, couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable about taking money from other people's misery. And so I felt that Bakira and her association merited whatever funds come from, that's due to me, any funds that come to me will go directly to her and the fantastic work that she does in Sarajevo and around the country. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sort of going into a bit more detail about some of the different organizations and people that you've been trying to support through this work. I wonder as well then if it may also be useful, because you've already talked a little bit about the art that you do in terms of, of helping you process the experiences you had while working in Bosnia. Yeah. But for, for other people who are potentially going into this area of work, going to be spending time in places like Bosnia, you know, where they're immersed in people's experiences of genocide and war crimes and crimes against humanity, what other kinds of strategies have you come across in, in your time that are useful for helping you to navigate the emotional and psychological challenges that come from this kind of work? Well, in the book, I tell the stories of Bosniaks, including one of the mothers and a good friend, Rishad, and a victim who was shot and killed into a mass grave, and a young woman who came to Scotland, explaining that three generations of her family in Bosnia all were incarcerated in concentration camps. But I was able to take a team of forensic experts back out to Bosnia, uh, uh, folk that I had worked with over the years. And we went out to Portocari, where the memorial centre is and where the graves of over 6,500 Muslims are buried. And these people that I had worked with had gone through this. They had their own emotions to deal with, of course, at the time, but it wasn't until we went out there and saw all the names of the victims on the beautiful cemetery out there that 
possibly for the first time publicly, I, at least, they showed their emotions in a very moving way. And it was as if by seeing the names of the victims registered with them about the importance of the work that they had done. I thought that I was a hard man in terms of being able to cope. I talked about my career when I retired. I had really been in the job for 40 years and had seen everything. But I recount a time in the book where working for the Foreign Office in Kosovo, we had to undergo PTSD counselling. And the, the young woman that was the counsellor held a, a meeting with us, and a group meeting and then an individual meeting. And of course, cops sitting around the circle, they were all, uh, you know, macho men. And they said, didn't bother them, blah, blah, blah. And then I had a private interview with a counsellor who told me that although it doesn't, it may not bother you now, but I think it might later on. And, and I brushed that off. However, it wasn't until almost the day that I retired that I started to experience symptoms of PTSD, flashbacks and nightmares and sweats and so on and so forth. And I kind of just accepted it as, well, of course, I had a long career dealing with death. It's not wouldn't be that unusual for me not to have bad dreams about it. But it did worry me a bit and because they continued relentlessly. And and so painting, and it was my wife's idea, actually, to um, she wondered what on earth I would do after 40 years dealing with death, what I would do in my retirement. And she knew I was, I'd always been interested in looking at paintings. I loved going to museums and art galleries and so on. And so she bought me an easel. I had been quite good at drawing before I entered the forensic world. And, and I started painting, but I couldn't get enthused about doing a portrait of my wife. In fact, she became quite fed up with me drawing her because she was at that time only model. But the dreams actually sparked me to try and do something about those images that came in the night. And, and I found it by painting. It helped me a lot, actually, because the dreams started to dissipate. My wife commented that she was getting a good night's sleep after me writhing about. And so but then again, through remembering Srebrenica, going into places and talking about it is, um, was, for me, very helpful. And been trying to do before COVID, of course, came along and spoiled it all. Physically going to schools and various places, I got some really good feedback. And I felt that anyone going through any kind of trauma, whether it be bullying at school or, or, or any kind of history of violence that they may have been involved with, that to try to encourage folk to express themselves and have to be in painting, but writing or music or, or anything like that. It helped me and, I, and my point was to try and, and impart some of that experience that I had. But also, like I mentioned, that I hadn't taken many photographs. We weren't allowed to take photographs of the horrors, basically, in, in the graves. And, and that's quite right. And I wouldn't want to show them at presentations anyway, you know, especially to young folk. And I found that by making these paintings, I could put together or allow, for example, in the case of schools, for them to put together actually what happened in Srebrenica by using the paintings to illustrate those events. And so I hope to get back to doing that again, but we'll see. So painting for me was, was therapeutic. I should stress, though, that what I experienced with bad dreams, etc., I constantly remind myself that it was nothing compared to what the people who are affected by this, not just them, but the children of the victims and now grandchildren of them, they're all affected by it. I remember giving, uh, having a conversation with an expert translator from, who was involved in the Nuremberg trials and uh, a lovely lady who explained to me that she too and all of the interpreters in the court suffered from PTSD because of the horror stories that they heard. And, and I allude to that a bit in the latter part of the book about my, my time in Kosovo. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really important observation too, isn't it, about the impact on the victims and their families and the trauma there, but the traumatic impact of dealing with this material, whether it's in forensics or taking witness statements or 
um, in court even and, and reading through and listening transcripts and as you know from having spent time with ICTY transcripts you read all of this stuff and then there'll be one thing that just stops you in your tracks I wonder whether it's you know, some of that comes through in, in forensics as well but it, it leads me to wonder what lessons can we take from your experience in Bosnia and in Kosovo and your long career thinking about these things and, and working on these things what lessons might we be able to take for current investigations in Ukraine for dealing with the crimes yeah. that are being committed there both in terms of the the sort of practicalities and logistics of the investigations but also you're thinking about your comments about the impact on the people involved in those investigations what we could do to take more care there as well over those people yeah that's another good question because in Bosnia, the, the ICTY sent, at one point, sent across a PTSD counsellor to try and support people who, who were there who were suffering, basically. And I wasn't there when this chap came, but I did get complaints about what he was doing because they felt he was making it worse you know, by, by, by digging into it, I guess. And, you know, I've every respect for counsellors and it's a very difficult question and lessons to be learned. You talk about Ukraine. One of the important lessons I would say is to remember. And I found it quite hurtful and interesting that over the last few weeks and months, politicians have been talking about the Ukraine as being the first war in Europe since 1945. And when you consider that Slobodan Milosevic um, instigated four wars in the former Yugoslavia and Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, and then Kosovo, for people who were affected by those wars, uh, it must be very hurtful for them to have their stories completely wiped out by stupid comments like that. And as far as what's happening in the Ukraine is concerned, I think that actually has sparked with some people, a few colleagues, ex-colleagues that I've been talking to has sparked memories of what they were involved with and involved in. And, you know, I look at it, I'm too old, fortunately, to be involved in, in that type of work anymore. But I can see that, sadly, lessons haven't really been learned. I thoroughly believe that when the ICTY, who I think overall did a great job and being able to capture and put on trial and prosecute the main perpetrators of the crimes in Bosnia. And although there were many, many cases, thousands perhaps, that will never come to court. But I really believed that when those sentences were passed, that potential despots, dictators or whoever would take notice of that and think twice before they perpetrated the same sort of crimes. And of course, we're seeing that in our TV screens every day now, where the, the, the crimes are being same or similar crimes are being televised each night on our TVs. And so I don't know, uh, as far as Ukraine is concerned, my biggest concern is that uh, it, there's a, a lot of pressure for people to be charged with war crimes. And whilst a war is currently going on, that's tricky because it can be tit for tat, you know, and we've seen that already with soldiers, British soldiers being sentenced to death, you know, and that will happen until the war stops. And it's only when the war stops that these crimes can be properly investigated by objective and hopefully international teams who aren't biased, you know, so, and the graves need to be preserved and so on. I saw early on in the war, I saw a police officer out of respect for a person who'd been shot with his hands tied behind his back and the policeman, out of respect for the victim, was untying the victim's hands and, and my heart sank because that's crucial evidence just being taken away. But I've got no doubt that there will be a major investigation following the end of that war, depending on who succeeds. But the other thing that I will say, with regard to Bosnia, no one in the mid-90s would have believed that Slobodan Milosevic would end up in The Hague being tried of genocide and war crimes, crimes against humanity. 
But I think the people of Serbia get so fed up with them really trying to cling on to power, especially with the final war in Kosovo, that he was handed over to The Hague and taken in handcuffs to be put on trial. And sadly, as you know, he, he died before the trial finished. And I hope that might send a message to, well, I doubt it though, it certainly hasn't uh, made much difference to Vladimir Putin. But nevertheless, the people, the Russian people may well one day realise what they've been sucked into and a similar fate may lay ahead for Putin. Just following that on Milosevic, you know, thinking about Putin, it could be convenient as it was with Milosevic to be able to ship him off somewhere else to the Hague to stand trial at, at some point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think at this point, we've probably either covered all the questions I think that I had or you've preempted them, which is wonderful. Rachel, did you have any other questions that you wanted to ask Robert? I didn't. I could probably sit and talk to you about this all day. It was such a fascinating book, so much rich in there. But I feel like we've asked you a lot and got you to delve quite a bit into it. So thank you very much for that. It's been really interesting. I guess I have maybe then one last question for you, which is simply, is there anything we haven't asked you about with regards to your book or the broader message you're hoping to communicate to the public with the book um, that you'd like to discuss? Not really. Today, the charity Remembering Srebrenica and Remembering Srebrenica Scotland, which is a separate but affiliated charity, have posted the blurb for the book on their, their social media, which is great. And uh, the publisher, Mirsad, his name is, is doing a tour of, um, of the United States just now promoting the book. And I hope it sells a lot in order that Bakira and her amazing women can continue with their work. Great. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for taking the time to, to speak with us today, um, to tell us thank you. more about your work, um, your very, very impressive work, um, both in Bosnia and, and elsewhere. And yeah, for providing a really, really useful behind the scenes sort of exploration of, of what it's like, not only for the people who work on these kinds of big international excavations and investigations of these kinds of crimes, but I think also um, your book does a really good job of highlighting what it's also like for the communities and the people who host these these kinds of excavations and these you know contexts that have been affected by different kinds of atrocity crimes. So you know, a really really valuable book, and I've, I've very much enjoyed um, speaking with you in more detail about it today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.